Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Mark chapter 6, verse 1, which you can find on page 841 if you're using the Bibles provided. The Gospel of Mark is one of four different accounts of the life of Jesus. And as a church, we've been slowly making our way through uh, the, the book week by week. To put the person and the character of Jesus under a microscope. As a Christian church, we don't want to simply know the bare minimum when it comes to the message of salvation. But we want to know all about the person of Jesus. Who he was. What he did. How he talked to people. And so on and so forth. We just finished a section through chapter 5 last week in which Jesus reveals his divinity by wielding authority over areas beyond human control. And all the while, his popularity up to this point has just exploded in the region. So much so that crowds come from all over and nearly crush him when they're around him, seeking to be healed. Well, in today's passage, Jesus returns to his hometown in Nazareth in order to preach to people there. Picture with me for a moment that you have been with Jesus all along up to this point. You've seen him heal a man paralyzed on the ground. You've seen him cure leprosy and even raise a little girl to life. You've seen great crowds coming around him as soon as he shows his face publicly. And then you hear that you're going to his hometown. I wonder what kind of welcome would be waiting for Jesus. How do you think he would be received when he returns to the place that he grew up. Perhaps they'll show a museum of his early life. Or maybe they'll hold a town celebration to welcome him back. Perhaps there will be a sign outside the gates that says, Welcome to Nazareth, home of Jesus Christ. Once again, the story takes a turn that we might not have guessed ourselves. Let's read our text together now. Mark 6, verses 1 through 13. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, Stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, 
Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. It seems like Mark bounces back and forth between people who despise and reject Jesus and people who show extraordinary faith. And it seems like in both of those cases, whether rejection or faith, those reactions come from unlikely people. Fishermen and tax collectors decide to follow Jesus. Religious leaders and political leaders like the Herodians plot to kill him. Well, this part of the story is not so different because we would expect the people who watch Jesus grow up to be his biggest fans. Most cities, you probably know, are very proud when a celebrity comes from that city. They often boast it and they name streets after the person. Well, that's what we would expect, a town hero of sorts. But that's not exactly what happens. Instead, we see another example of hostility in response to Jesus. And we're reminded of the opposition to the word of God. If you're taking notes, the main idea of this passage is that the kingdom of God will advance through proclamation, no matter how it is received. The kingdom of God will advance through proclamation, no matter how it is received. The text itself is pretty easy to break up if you're reading through it. I think if you're using an ESV translation, the paragraphs are a good division. So we basically have verses 1 to 6, or the first half of verse 6, in which Jesus is rejected in his hometown in Nazareth. And then the second section runs from the second half of verse 6 all the way down to verse 13, in which Jesus commissions the disciples to go out and preach on his behalf in different cities. I think the easiest way to understand this passage is just to take it one paragraph at a time. So first, let's consider Jesus' rejection in Nazareth. Uh, Most Bible translations, while Nazareth isn't explicitly mentioned by Mark, most translations will have a heading that says it's Nazareth uh, because that is Jesus' hometown. Not to be confused with the place of his birth, which was Bethlehem. In the Gospel of Luke, the author records that Joseph's hometown was Nazareth, but that he traveled to Bethlehem because he was of the house of David and there was a census going on. And then Luke says that after they performed everything according to the law of the Lord, this is after Jesus is born in the manger, uh, they returned to Galilee, to their town, Nazareth. That's in Luke 2, verse 39. So Jesus was born in a manger in Bethlehem, but he grew up in this little town, Nazareth, which is why he is called Jesus of Nazareth. And remember, that's how the demon identifies Jesus in chapter 1. Well, the town itself is thought to be made up of less than 500 people. Some commentators even say as few as 150 to 200, which means that everybody knew everybody. In the ancient world, many people lived in the same place for their entire lives and for, in fact, generations. So the people of this small town likely would have watched Jesus grow up or they would have grown up alongside him. And you can feel that coming from the way They talk about his family. Jesus comes home and on the Sabbath he goes to the local synagogue to teach, as we've seen him already do in other towns like Capernaum. And what's the response to his teaching? 
It says in verse 2 that people were astonished, amazed, captivated. Some translations say surprised. His teaching was completely unexpected by the people. And they recognized that uniqueness of Jesus as a person. Now Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus said or did during his time with them, but whatever he did or whatever he said, he left them dumbfounded. It leaves them grasping for answers like as if they're trying to grab air. Just in verse 2, they ask three questions about Jesus. All appear to be rhetorical. And while we don't know exactly what Jesus did, it must have been impressive based on these three questions. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? It's clear from this passage that Jesus is just undeniably amazing. That's the first impression of the people around him. And notice there's no hint of disagreement or argument about anything that Jesus says. We simply have their raw reaction to his presence among them and his teaching. And that's an interesting note, isn't it? That even though, uh, even those who go on to reject him acknowledge his greatness, his otherworldly wisdom, and his mighty works. And as they're grappling to understand who the person is in front of them, they let their familiarity about Jesus triumph over their ability to see him as more than just a man from their small village. In verse 3, they ask more questions among each other about his family. They say, is, this, is not this the carpenter? Which really is a way of downplaying his powerful teaching. Instead of saying, look at the mighty and great teacher that this man has become, they draw attention to his town identity, carpenter, his profession among them. Carpenters were honest, humble people. They were common workers, not highly educated, not really popular, but everyone would have known him. Like everyone knows the local plumber or the local mechanic of the town, he was a tradesman. And in this way, they downplay his credibility as a rabbi or religious authority. Jesus is a carpenter, so they're not wrong. But the intent behind that question is really an inference that Jesus doesn't have authority or expertise. He was not trained by some famous rabbi. He's just a carpenter. And they let that familiarity with Jesus cloud their judgment. This is especially a danger, I think, for people who grow up in church. There's a famous saying, familiarity breeds contempt. It's the idea that the more you get to know someone, the more reasons you find to dislike them or you take certain things for granted. And you can sense that a little bit in their response. So we need to be careful to guard our hearts from becoming so familiar with Jesus that we forget about his lordship over our lives. The danger for us is we neglect to search the scripture for hidden gems. We assume we already know the stories and that it doesn't apply to our specific circumstance. We grow so familiar with Jesus that we get comfortable letting sin into our lives and we get offended when it comes into the light. Be on guard against the idea that you have religion and Jesus all figured out. 
No matter how long you've been a Christian or how many times you've read the Bible, I promise God has more to teach you about himself inside of it. I'm reminded of that every week when I study passages. Some of them I'm already very familiar with. Some of them others not as much. But every time, God in his kindness shows me new things. There's always work to do in my own heart as well. So I recognize that as I study the word, God is softening and chipping away at my heart. Well, the people continue to ask questions, and the questions kind of progress in a more negative way. In verse 3, they say, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? Now, why is that significant? It could be a way of questioning his, questioning the virgin birth. Uh, so Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit while still engaged to Joseph. And if you read the birth narrative, you'll know that Joseph was a respectable man and was planning to divorce her quietly. So there, there may have been suspicion from others looking in that Jesus was born out of wedlock, that he was an illegitimate child. I can't be sure if that's exactly what they meant in this case. But even if they didn't, it's unusual to refer to a man as the son of his mother. The cultural norm, for example, was to refer to the son as their, uh, uh, underneath the name of the father. For example, David, the son of Jesse, or James, the son of Zebedee. Well, they go on to name Jesus' his brothers and sisters, and I think they're convincing themselves as they do this. They're convincing themselves out of belief based on their knowledge of his family. And then it says at the end of verse 3, and they took offense at him. They can't reconcile. We know who this is. These are his brothers and his sisters and his mother. They can't reconcile the mediocrity of Jesus' upbringing with his authoritative and wise teaching. And it's amazing, isn't it, that Mark is such an exciting book. If at any point during our time studying you thought to yourself, I have such a boring life. I don't see Jesus doing anything like this in my life today. Think for a moment about what Jesus' childhood and young adulthood was like. For the first 30 years, we know his ministry was about three years, and he was crucified at age 33, which means that for the first 30 years of Jesus' life, he lived in this tiny town, Nazareth, doing normal things, like carpentry. Luke records a brief story when Jesus is 12 years old, when his parents... They forget him and they leave him at the temple in Jerusalem. Imagine forgetting Jesus. They leave him behind and then they find him. And he's found learning, sitting under the teaching of the scribes. But other than that, other than his birth, that one story when he's 12, and the beginning of his ministry, we know hardly anything about Jesus' life. His 30 years is unremarkable or unknown, or normal. Does that mean that God wasn't working? No. Does it mean that God didn't have a plan for his life? No. Should we assume that God is not working or does not have a plan for our lives because we feel unremarkable? No. God often works over long periods of time through very ordinary means to accomplish his purposes. 
So, brothers and sisters, be faithful in all that you do wherever God has called you. Well, Jesus responds to their reaction in verse 4. He says, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Which is Jesus' way of first calling out their unbelief. He doesn't mean to say that he is only a prophet uh, and not the Son of God. But he does mean to indicate that he is God's sent one, just like the prophets of old, and that he is being rejected by his own people, just like Israel's prophets were. It would have been a sore spot, I'm guessing. It would have been a shameful part of Israel's history to look back and know God sent prophets and his people did not listen to them. It's a statement that indicates the authority by which Jesus preaches as well as judgment that will fall on those who reject him. Just like the prophet Isaiah, Jesus brings a message to his own people that they would not accept. And because they did not accept him, Mark tells us in verse 5 that he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Uh, That statement's a little confusing, isn't it? Does this mean that Jesus did not have the ability to do a mighty work. I don't think that's what Mark is saying. And the reason is because he obviously heals a few sick people on the way and notice just his compassion. And even despite unbelief around him, he stops to heal those who are in need of healing. All throughout the gospel, though, if we want to understand this sentence, we need to remember what the purpose of Jesus' miracles are. And all throughout the gospel, it appears that Jesus performed miracles as a supplement to his teaching, to come alongside or to support his teaching, what he was preaching. He didn't perform them just for the sake of wowing people, but as a way of revealing himself to them. And so it would seem that Jesus knew that it would be a lost cause to perform one to them. And I say that because of what Mark tells us in verse 6, that Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. They had already heard his teaching. They were already astonished and recognized his wisdom, and yet they rejected him anyway because of their hearts. Therefore, when it says he could do no mighty work there, it's not as though his power was limited in any way, but that their hearts were so hardened against him, a miracle would only make them more callous. And from their negative example, we need to recognize that unbelief hinders a right understanding of Jesus. Unbelief hinders a right understanding of Jesus. There are deep mysteries that God may never reveal to us, but he has made the identity and the work of his son crystal clear. Even still, just like in Jesus' day, many will be hindered from understanding through their unbelief and hardness of heart which is a good reminder for us to any time we approach the Word of God, to do so humbly and prayerfully, trusting in the Lord to sanctify us with His Word. We need to recognize that we are all prone to unbelief in some way. Sometimes we need to pray like the man in Mark 9 and say to God, I believe, help my unbelief. Because otherwise, we won't be able to see what God is doing in our lives. There are only two places 
in the whole Bible that we read that Jesus marvels like this. One is when Jesus sees the faith of the centurion in Matthew 8. He marvels because he says he had not seen faith like that in all of Israel. But here, Jesus marvels at their unbelief. Not because Jesus was surprised, but because they were so decisively against him. So it's a reminder for us that sometimes exposure to Jesus offends people. Sometimes people hear the very teachings of Jesus and they're offended. The gospel is not just a message that God loves us, but that we are sinners deserving the wrath of God, that we have offended Him. But the good news of the gospel is that God made a way for us to be made sons and daughters of the kingdom. He sent His Son Jesus to live a life of perfect obedience and to die the death that we deserved on the cross so that we could be given His righteousness. He rose from the grave conquering death so that we could know that our hope is secure in Him. That His power is strong enough to conquer even death. Recognize, brothers and sisters, that Jesus' rejection was part of God's plan to bring salvation to the world. He was despised and rejected as the prophet Isaiah said he would be. Paul says that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18 This story of Christ's rejection in his hometown is just one piece of the puzzle to God's amazing plan of redemption. So don't think just because people are offended that God is not working through it. Expect the world to act like the world in accordance with their unbelief. And be amazed at the way the Lord still works through it. Rejection. This rejection here at Nazareth would eventually lead to the cross. And from all we know, this is the last time that we know of Jesus going to Nazareth. And so we see here that Jesus deciding to leave after he is rejected as a form of judgment in leaving them in their own unbelief. We don't know of another chance that Nazareth would have had to listen to the teachings of Jesus. So too today, none of us are promised tomorrow. And so if you're here and you've not put your trust in Jesus, you've heard the gospel but you're just not sure, if you want to make that step of faith yet, turn from your sin and trust in Him. You may not get another chance to. That's Jesus rejected in Nazareth by His people. Now let's consider the next paragraph. Jesus sends out the twelve. Point two. Look at what Jesus' response is to his own people rejecting him in the second half of verse 6. What did Jesus do after that? And he went among the villages teaching. You remember that old uh, slogan that people put on wristbands and t-shirts? WWJD as a way to think through how to live in the Christian life. It stood for what would Jesus do? Maybe you've wondered what Jesus would do in an evangelistic conversation where the person is offended and angry at you for sharing that with them. Well, here we know what Jesus does. He continues to teach 
I love that simplicity. He goes back to his home of 30 years, sees people he grew up with, neighbors, family members. He teaches them and they completely reject him. And after being rejected, what does the Son of God do? Does he rain down fire, split open the earth, plague them with sores? No, he continues to teach. Like a farmer after sowing seed on a desolate land, he moves over to the next field and continues to sow there. And it's at this point that we see the mission of Jesus franchised. Jesus calls his disciples to himself and charges them to go out two by two, which is significant. And why, why would something like that, a small detail like that, be significant? Well, because if the goal was to preach as, in as many places as quickly as possible, it obviously would have been much easier to send them out individually to all these different areas. But there are a few benefits that going out in twos rather than alone. First, it would have given more credibility to the message that they proclaimed. In Deuteronomy 17, for example, there needed to be at least two people for a credible account in a courtroom case. One person's word was just not enough. So it would have at least provided two witnesses to the teachings and the miracles of Jesus, as well as the authority by which they cast out demons. Second, going out in pairs would be a a natural kind of accountability and protection for each disciple. Now, I want to be clear. I don't think that this is a manual or a, a, a discipleship blueprint for missions today. But we can see some parallels to the Christian life. Within the church, in cases of church discipline, for example, when a member goes wayward and believers are to go uh, confront them and, and call them to repentance, Matthew 18 says to go with two or three witnesses and lovingly call them back to the church so that their soul would be saved. We see missions as not just an individual, isolated effort, but a collective one. And we recognize our need for one another. We should be a church that depends and asks for each other's help and accountability in life. Brothers and sisters, uh, your church members, your fellow church members are a gift from the Lord and a means God ordained to sustain the faith of his people. This was a specific mission that Jesus sent his disciples on and one that gave them, he gave them unique authority for. And he And their entire discipleship has led up to this point in this book. For example, just think about the first time Jesus called the fishermen. What did he tell them? I'm going to make you fishers of men. And then they watched as Jesus did this when he called Levi, the tax collector, to himself. They certainly would have witnessed him teaching and casting out demons. And now Jesus grants them the authority to do the same on his behalf. And at this point in the story, I'm reminded of just what a strange group of people the disciples are that the Lord chose to use and to send out. Not exactly who you would think or choose to be on your team. Not exactly who you would want to start a worldwide religious movement, but that's all we know about these disciples. He calls them together and he says, I'm going to give you authority to go out and preach in my name and to cast out demons. Only don't take anything other than what you're wearing, basically. He instructs them very precisely 
in verses 8 and 9, and it might be a little confusing to us at first. He sa- he, it says, He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Basically, they're just to take whatever they're wearing and purchase no more, which I think is first a sign that the mission they're going on is a temporary one. It's not a permanent mission, and it's one that's geographically limited. They're to go out to the surrounding towns and then return. If he was sending them out permanently, I assume there would have been different instructions. And in fact, after the resurrection, Jesus does send out his disciples permanently, and we read about that in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. It's not just the 12 disciples at that point, though. It's all believers. Second, they're to take the bare minimum. And the reason for that is so that they rely on God to meet their provisions. They're not to take extra bread along with them or extra clothes. That second tunic was meant to be for sleeping outside when uh, weather was harsh. And the bag is not a backpack like we think. Um, they're not going on a, a road trip or they're not uh, hitchhiking. That, back, that bag is referring to a beggar's bag. But they're not to be panhandles handlers either. Therefore, they're not to overindulge or take advantage of people's kindness as they go about from town to town. That's why in verses 10 to 11, Jesus instructs them to, to stay at whatever house receives them until it's time to leave the area. Meaning, they couldn't go to one house and then if a nicer house opened up its doors, they, they could leave and go to the nicer house. Jesus is saying not, not to play on people's generosity, but stay in one house until your work is done and then go on to the next place. It's interesting that these instructions parallel the instructions given to the Israelites on the night of the Passover. The night God calls his people out of Egypt. And so with these mere instructions about what they're to take with them, there's a sense of urgency, just like there was in the Exodus. They're wearing the same clothes. There's a new deliverance occurring as the message of the gospel is going out and a new people being created as more disciples choose to follow Jesus. Of course, Jesus prepares them for the inevitable as well. Not everyone will welcome them. Not everyone will listen. Uh, I don't think that would have surprised them at this point, or at least it shouldn't have. They would have already seen all the opposition against Jesus at this point. But even so, Jesus gives them an interesting instruction in verse 11. He says, And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. Seems like a strange response. This will show them. This was, in fact, a cultural custom. To remove the sandal was a practice by the Jewish people when leaving alien towns. And it was a way they would remove the dust, not just from their sandal, but their clothing as well. And it was a way of completely disassociating from the pagan lands that they were leaving. It was a way of showing that people who reject the message of God will themselves be liable to judgment. It was a prophetic act designed to provoke thought on the part of the alien town. We sort of have a way of doing this in our culture. Uh, We don't shake the dust off our feet, but we 
clap it off of our hands sometimes. Or we say things like, I wash my hands of this. Or my hands are clean, implying, I've done my part. Now you're responsible. Your blood is on your own hands. That's why Jesus says this sign will be a testimony against them. Much like Jesus continues to teach after being rejected by his hometown, his disciples are to continue on their way and to continue to preach elsewhere when they are not received. The encouragement for us is twofold. We must be utterly dependent on God for our evangelism. This text is not saying that we should replicate what the disciples did, but we can look at the principles behind Jesus' instructions and be encouraged to have the same mindset as them on their mission. Depend on God for wisdom, for reception, for courage, and to not let rejection prevent us from being a mouthpiece for the kingdom of God. People might be offended like they were in Nazareth. They might think it's foolish, but so what? The kingdom of God will advance through proclamation no matter how it is received. Our job is not to, or our job rather is to simply faithfully proclaim the message. I used to have constructs when I was a kid. Does anyone know what constructs are? Figures. Constructs were like the lesser known cousin of Legos. They were discontinued in 1988, if that tells you anything. Uh, But I'm a younger sibling of a large family, so I grew up playing with constructs. And like Legos, if you had the right pieces, you could build an entire kingdom from these building materials. Okay, You could build spaceships and cars and tracks for them. They were very cool. But after many years, we were pretty limited in what we could do. We started losing pieces. Uh, We couldn't buy more sets. Nobody else had any of these toys. Uh, But in order to expand the great kingdom of constructs, you would need another set of the same pieces. You couldn't expand it with a set of Legos or Hot Wheels tracks. That would be a different thing entirely. Well, that's sort of like what the disciples are for this stage in Jesus' ministry. They are like an extension of his teaching and the authority he gave them uh, as they go out to different towns. They were representatives of his because they continued to proclaim the same message that he preached and exercised the same authority that he had. If they changed the message, catered it to their own desires, they would have been building an entirely different kingdom, a kingdom of their own, separate from what Jesus had done so far. And there's a confirmation of that in verse 17. After Jesus instructs them, what did they go out and do? They went out and proclaimed that people should repent. It's the same message that Jesus has been preaching ever since his first sermon in chapter 1, verse 15. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God's at hand. And John the Baptist preached before Jesus. They clearly taught more than those exact words. It's not like they just went around and simply said, repent. Uh, I assume they would have shared about Jesus and explained some of his miracles to those who were eager to listen and taught from the scriptures the way Jesus had. But Mark's summary of their message was that people should repent, which is interesting. 
Think for a moment about the last time you shared the gospel with someone. Could you summarize that conversation as proclaiming to them that they should repent? It's a little cringy if we're honest with ourselves. There's so many amazing other things to talk about or to tell someone about the Bible. And we should explain more if we're able to, but we cannot share less than that people should repent. And of course, we must share this lovingly, but they need to know the danger that they're in. People need to see themselves in light of God's holiness in order to understand their need for Christ. So this is the big encouragement for us as a church. We need to be sure that the message we preach beckons a response. That the message of good news calls people into action and not just reflection. And we should remind ourselves that the Christian life is one of ongoing repentance. So we shouldn't exclude ourselves from this activity. It's not a one-time deal. I don't know where this idea comes from, but we tend to think that because we repented once for salvation, God knows we're sorry and we don't need to later when we sin. But imagine a six-year-old child who, after a sustained period of disobedience, was confronted by her parents. And when asked why she didn't apologize for her disobedience, she said, Mommy, Daddy, I'm six years old. I apologized when I was five. As long as we continue sinning, we need to continue repenting ourselves, not for salvation, but for a right relationship with God and for the reminder of the forgiveness that we have in Christ. I think if we regularly repent and remind ourselves of the forgiveness of Christ, we will naturally want to help others experience that same forgiveness too. In conclusion, we should expect skepticism and unbelief when it comes to the person of Jesus, even in places where he might be familiar. But despite unbelief, take heart. The kingdom of God will advance through proclamation of the gospel. So we must depend on God in our evangelism and continue to preach the message. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to have the mind of Christ. Spirit, we pray that you would give us courage and endurance to run the race before us. Protect us from the sin of unbelief or self-reliance. Show us new things from your word each week. We pray that we would be faithful to the message that you have given and entrusted to us and that we would proclaim it to the world in the same way as the disciples do in our passage this morning. We praise you that you are a God who saves sinners. That while the the message to repent might be uncomfortable at times, it is through repentance that we can receive the grace given to you through the Son, Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen.